This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Rituals and ceremonies can take many different forms. Ritualized prayers can be very simple, like this family's spoken blessing before a meal, but they can also be chanted, sung, and danced, as we see with these devotees praising Krishna. In some cases, people's movements are fairly freeform. In others, they're highly synchronized, as they were in this opening ceremony from the Beijing Olympics. Some rituals involve pain. Here, Shiite Muslims mark the killing of the grandson of Muhammad with tears and self-flagellations. Others may include drugs, such as peyote or ayahuasca, and still others include wine. These ceremonies and rituals fall on a spectrum when it comes to altered states of consciousness. A blessing before a meal isn't likely to induce what we think of as an altered state, while hallucinogens such as peyote reliably induce visions and other unusual experiences. Let me highlight the variable relationship between ritual and altered states by showing you two clips from different versions of the same ritual, a Catholic Mass. The Mass has a Vatican-approved ritual script that includes a segment called the Sign of Peace. The Sign of Peace involves a set back and forth between the priest and the people. Here's how it went in the Daily Mass broadcast on Canadian television. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Contrast that with the sign of peace in a mass in a small town in Ghana. Both are following the same approved ritual script, but I hazard to say that the dancing and drumming in this African mass is more likely to induce an alteration in consciousness, at least in some people, than the Canadian mass online. This brings me to our main point. If we adopt fairly mainstream definitions of both ritual and altered states of consciousness, it's clear that they intersect in some cases, but not in others. First, rituals do not necessarily produce noticeably altered states of consciousness. Second, deliberately induced altered states, the focus of this symposium, make use of a wide variety of so-called induction techniques. Third, rituals whether religious or not, reliably induce noticeably altered states only if the ritual includes induction techniques, which many rituals do not. And finally, fourth, ritualization stabilizes altered states and reinforces their value. Here's an overview of where we're going. Before we dive into some more examples, I want to lay out some basics having to do with rituals, altered states of consciousness, and the ways that the two can intersect or not. When it comes to rituals, 
there are several things that we need to keep in mind. First, whatever else they are, rituals are performances, that is, special events that are set apart from everyday life. Second, performances are ritualized to varying degrees. Formal rites and ceremonies are highly ritualized, but sports, games, theater, and the arts can be more or less ritualized as well. And third, we need to keep in mind that what counts for us as ritual, rite, or ceremony is shaped by our history. Other cultures don't necessarily make the distinction we make between a religious ritual and a theatrical performance or a musical concert. With that in mind, let's take a look at how scholars define ritual. Here's a recent mainstream definition of ritual. Rather than read it, I'll just highlight the four key aspects of this definition. First, it involves action. It's a predefined sequence of actions, and that's what makes it a performance. Second, it has a script. So the action is characterized by rigidity, formality, and repetition. Now I want to give you an example, because sometimes the performer of the ritual blows it and has to recover. And I can't resist showing you this example. So, in case you didn't understand what rigidity means, rigidity means that when you drop the cloth in a sacred ritual on the floor, you can't just pick it up and go on using it. <laughs> you have to, you can't just put it back. You have to get a new cloth that hasn't been defiled and then you can proceed. Okay, third point, meaning. The actions involved in the ritual are embedded in a larger system of symbolism and meaning. And fourth, the ritual has components. It, it contains subroutines that lack direct instrumental purpose. So the part about the cloth might is one of those subroutines that you could say lack direct instrumental purpose. But for our purposes, a really important thing to notice is there's no mention in this definition of altered states of consciousness. So let's turn now to how altered states are defined. The current definitions basically still go back to the one suggested by Ludwig back in the 1960s, and it's quoted here on this slide. But again, let me just highlight the, the key feature, which is that an altered state is a mental state recognized either by the subject or by an observer based on the behavior of the person that deviates 
from the general norms, however those are defined, of alert waking consciousness. For our purposes, it's also important to note that altered states that are deliberately induced make use of what we're calling induction techniques. Now, if you go to an expert source like Wikipedia, you can find a long list of induction techniques, and they include such things as breathwork, dance, fasting, hypnosis, mantra recitation, music, physical exercise, prayer, psychoactric drugs, sleep deprivation. I can keep going on. The point for us is that these so-called induction techniques can be embedded in rituals, but oftentimes they're not. This means that when it comes to relating rituals and altered states, we can ask a series of questions to figure out how they're related, if at all. We can start either with the rituals or with the induction techniques. If we start with the rituals, we can ask if they involve induction techniques, and if so, how the techniques relate to the ritual content. Are they integral to the ritual, or are they optional, as they were in relation to the Mass, or are they discouraged? Alternatively, we can start with the induction techniques and consider the extent to which they're ritualized. We can ask whether the ritual is, per, uh, is personal or collective, and we can ask whether or to what extent it's embedded in a larger system of meaning. Here we're going to start with the induction techniques. We're going to look at several. We're going to look at visualization, we're going to look at chanting and movement, and we're going to look very briefly at pain as an induction technique. And then we're con going to conclude by considering the effects of ritualization. We can begin with a series of clips on visualization. In the first clip, Anthony Gale, a hypnotist, explains how he selected kids, high school kids, for a demonstration um, to a high school audience. These folks appear to be extremely good visualizers. They have an ability to internalize a picture quickly and easily, which is what a hypnotist is looking for. A hypnotist wants to see, can a person take a picture and transmit that picture into action? If you invite them to imagine holding 100 balloons, do you get the arm autonomously rising? So I've identified these folks as being very good visualizers. In this next clip, Ashanti Johnson opens her TED Talk with a description of the personal visualization ritual that led to the founding of her successful exercise and weight loss program on the south side of Chicago. So every morning, as I was getting ready for work, I would have my favorite cup of coffee and I would enjoy it on my balcony. It was my ritual. I would sit down and instead of looking out at the amazing view I had, I would look down at the parking lot and imagine that one day it would be my fitness gym's parking lot. And while everybody's, you know, seeking stability, you know, on the level of their family and their job, I was having these intense visions of my potential in fitness. Every vision would unfold just a little bit more and it was becoming real. Visualization is gonna help you to determine what you want so that you can fully realize your vision. 
In that last video, Johnson promoted the power of visualization in order to reach her personal goal. In the next video, a young woman named Hearthwitch introduces visualization as the foundation of magical practice. Visualization is the ability to see something in the mind's eye, to be able to almost physically see something as though it was in front of you. It allows us to add an extra layer into spell work and ritual, to be able to see the desired outcome that we want to achieve as though it's already happened, to be able to see in the mind's eye the energy that we are manipulating. The sequence illustrates several things. First of all, what good visualizers see can seem real to them, even if it's not. Second, visualization can guide action and sometimes produce what's visualized. And third, visualization practices can be incorporated into personal rituals, such as Johnson's, or into collective practices and passed on by teachers, such as Hearthwitch. From an evolutionary perspective, we can think of visualization as a way of projecting into the future. This allows people to plan for various contingencies and undoubtedly has survival benefits in terms of human evolution. But at the same time, it can also lead people to get stuck in fantasies and conspiracy theories that are entirely out of touch with reality. Now let's look at a set of clips that involve chanting. Chanting can be done alone, in a group, sitting still, and combined with music and movement. Chanting is not limited to religious contexts. Here you see American football fans chanting with synchronous movements. In the next chant, you see football players chanting We Ready sprawled around on the locker room floor and gradually building to a collective dance-like movement as they prepare to go out onto the field. Compare that locker room chant with this clip from an Ubanda center in Brazil, which includes chanting, drumming, and dancing as devotees are possessed by African deities known as Orishas. In these videos, chanting and movement unite the group and encourage the performers, the football players, and the Umbanda devotees. In both cases, the specific chants bring out the best efforts of the performers, whether on a football field or in an Umbanda center. Chanting and collective movement promote what Durkheim referred to as collective effervescence, and as he argued, tend to promote group solidarity. This too likely has evolutionary benefits in promoting collective action on the part of the group. Finally, let us look briefly at extreme rituals, many of which, like the Muslim ritual we showed you at the outset, look like they inflict pain, whether through body piercings, firewalking, bondage, or self-flagellation. 
Recent studies of some of these rituals indicate that performers may not actually feel the kind of pain we would expect and instead experience altered states, such as ecstasy, euphoria, or unusual mental clarity. The ability to split off or dissociate feelings of pain or threat may have evolutionary roots. Although some researchers view dissociation as pathological, others have suggested that it may have enabled people to process information differently in the face of extreme threats, and thus to have had survival value. To sum things up, we've considered three different types of induction techniques that may have evolved to serve different ends. We've looked at visualization, which enables future planning. We've looked at chanting and movement, which promotes synchrony and group coordination. And we've looked at pain-induced dissociation as a means of reducing stress under extreme conditions. So why would humans have ritualized these induction techniques? What added value might it have offered? We want to suggest three potential benefits. First, ritualization stabilizes the effects of the induction technique. The stabilizing effect is obvious in relation to psychoactive drugs, where both researchers and drug users have long been aware of the importance of set and setting in avoiding bad trips and promoting positive ones. This, we think, is likely true of other, less reliable induction techniques as well. Second, ritualization reinforces the value of the altered state by integrating it into a larger system of meaning. This, in turn, generates expectations, which helps to produce the desired results. Third, ritualization encourages the transmission of the techniques as a means of achieving the goals of the group. This isn't a one-way street, however. Altered states can also add value to rituals, as the two versions of the mass that we showed you highlighted Induction techniques tend to intensify rituals and may make them much more compelling. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.